0: Today, my guest is Joseph Buckley. He's the president of John E. Reed and Associates. This organization offers interview training. I'm often asked by people, where can I get interview training? And this is the organization that I used when I recognized I needed some training. And a little bit of a funny story, I went to a four-day class I was in the room with, I'm guessing, about 20 people, many of which were from Homeland Security. And the first couple of days, the instructor would show us videos, give us scenarios, and he'd, then he would ask us, OK, how many of you think that person was deceitful or guilty? And the pattern that I noticed was my hand went up at a completely different time than the Homeland Security people. So obviously, I knew my answer was wrong, sure enough. By the end of the week in the seminar, my hand went up most of the time at the same time as theirs. So I I know the class worked. I learned a lot and it was great, but I wanted to have Joe here so that he could give us his insight and his years of training. So welcome, Joe.
1: Thank you very much. Welcome happy to be here, happy to be here.
0: Thank you. Now I have a set of questions for you so that the listeners can, can learn how to recognize deception. But my first question is does deception look pretty much the same for everybody?
1: Uh, and the answer is of course, no. The thing about behavior, verbal and nonverbal behavior, there's no behavior that is unique to deception. So for example, people often think that if the individual doesn't look at you and they answer the question, they're probably lying. But in fact, some people based on the cultural uh, influence of the of their culture may not look at us when they talk to us. People have psychological issues, lack of self-confidence, etc. may not look directly at a person when they answer them. And they're completely telling the truth. So the key to assessing someone's behavior is at the outset of the interview try to get a baseline or norm and so the way we do that is we talk about casual conversation some biographical information name address etc what their current position is how long they've been in that position the kinds of things that they will be unlikely to lie about when we're talking about let's say somebody working in a hospital where drugs have been diverted and there's some suspicion some of the staff have been stealing the drugs Uh, and so that gives us kind of a behavioral baseline And so later on in the interview, when we asked them a question about the missing drugs, and now for the first time in the interview, they're kind of looking down with their hand over their eyes, that would be a significant behavior because it's different than the norm. They uh, uh, displayed early on when we're just kind of casually talking. Mm -hmm. And and so there is no behavior unique to deception. It always has to be viewed in context.
0: Sure. That makes sense. I think a lot of us, know that there are nonverbal behaviors that we need to learn to watch for. But are there also verbal things that we should be listening for the way somebody says something or the way they don't say something an omission? Uh,
1: absolutely. Uh, One of the easiest things to discern is whether or not the person is answering on time or if there is a significant delay. So for example, if you're interviewing one of the nurses who you suspect might be involved in stealing drugs and you say to him or her, have you ever just thought about stealing drugs from the hospital pharmacy? Most truthful people go, absolutely not. Never, never. Whereas the deceptive person might go, I mean, why would I do something like that? They hesitate and they give you an answer, but it's not an answer to the question. So one of the things you're always thinking when you hear a response is, did they give me a definitive answer to my question and if they didn't you'd want to follow up uh, by asking them the same question or a version of that same question Uh, there are other verbal cues sometimes the deceptive try to bolster their answer because they're not confident that it sounds credible. They're not confident you believe it. So they use phrases like, look, I swear to God, I don't know what happened to those drugs. As God is my witness. I, I, I never saw that before. I never dealt with that patient. Uh, anytime they bring God into the conversation to support their answers, our antenna go up because most truthful people don't need to do that. Their answers are just fine as they are. Uh, when somebody tells you I will swear on a stack of Bibles, I will swear on my mother's grave. Again, those are bolstering phrases that you see more often on the deceptive side than you do the truthful. But let me again say by itself, it's not definitive of anything. It's just something to be aware of and you have to look at the overall behavior throughout the interview process.
0: What about when somebody always tells a story with every answer? I mean, the answer doesn't require more than a few words but yet we get this related uh somewhat related story
1: Uh, i think it depends on what they are normally like uh let's just say our subject's name is tom uh and he has that habit of giving us a much more extended answer story if you will than just you know the simple yes or no or whatever it might be uh, and when we talk to Tom's supervisor, we say, you know, uh, we're, we're going to interview several of your staff, anything I should be aware of with anybody he says, I tell you one thing, you're going to be in for a treat when you talk to Tom, that guy doesn't know how to shut up. He just keeps talking and talking and talking. Okay. So that may be the way Tom normally is. If on the other hand, he isn't normally like that. And all of a sudden, he's giving you these stories, these extended answers, oftentimes, which are not to the point at all, then of course, that would raise some suspicion. But again, I want to emphasize that we're looking at behavior with our case facts and evidence to make an assessment. Because I can tell you, and all of your folks have seen this, you can have somebody who's a very persuasive liar, good Mm -hmm. nonverbal behavior, good verbal behavior, and yet they're completely not telling the truth. Um, uh, So we don't want to make our decision one way or the other only on behavior. We always look at our case facts and evidence to make sure all the pieces fit together.
0: Absolutely. All right. What about nonverbal? cues of deception what are some of the more common ones to watch for well i
1: think uh, excuse me i think some of the more common ones are uh, uh, changes in posture for example if you say to somebody did you ever think about stealing drugs from the uh, ph- the hospital pharmacy and the person goes you know i mean that kind of thought has just never crossed my mind and they're sitting back turning away crossing their arms physical movement relieves anxiety most truthful people are telling the tr- who are telling the truth, of course, uh, don't have that level of anxiety. They didn't do anything. They know they didn't do anything. They'll answer your questions and then they go back to work. The deceptive person has a degree of anxiety. Are you going to find out what I did? Uh, Is there some evidence that links me to the situation? What's gonna happen to me if you find out, Will I lose my job, am I gonna go to jail? And there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of times, physical anxiety, turning away, closing up the posture, uh, may be a release of that anxiety. So when we see that, we would view that as a negative behavior. Now, if it only happens once in a 60 minute interview, may not be definitive or significant, but if it happens repeatedly on the key questions, it's beginning to paint a picture. Uh, Another thing we might look at is what we call uh, a a gesture where you ask me to tell you what happened when I got this medication for my patient, when I went down the hall, et cetera. And the whole time I'm telling you my story, I'm brushing my sleeve. Brushing my sleeve allows me to do, two things. When I tell you my story, it allows me to engage in a physical behavior that relieves some of my anxiety and allows me to avoid looking at you because I'm looking down at what I'm doing. And so I'm not looking at you. It gives me that excuse. And it really is inappropriate for the moment. What should happen is the truthful person leans forward and says, look, I'll tell you exactly what happened. I got the medication at four thirty in the afternoon and then go through their story.
0: Sure. What about somebody that sits pretty still? Is that, could that be a sign of deception? I mean, there's just not a lot of movement there at all.
1: Well, we, we show uh, in our program, a, a variety of different postures that are common, more so on the truthful side, and, and then a group that are more so on the deceptive side. And one of the postures that we see sometimes on the deceptive side is what we call rigid and immobile. This is a person who is frozen in place. And I'm not talking about four or five minutes. We're talking about 15, 20, 25 minutes. The guy has not moved a muscle. Uh, beyond the norm for most people. Most people are gonna be moving at some point, getting more comfortable, crossing a leg, et cetera the reason some people go into this frozen posture is they're so worried about what to say they're trying to remember what they told that first person who interviewed them they're trying to remember what they and their buddy say they would say if they were asked about this let's say two guys did something together and so they kind of physically shut down it's called rigid and immobile so again if you get rigid and immobile a very defensive attitude evasive answers qualified answers etc it's beginning to lead you in the direction that this person is probably withholding information or not telling us the truth about what happened
0: I had one of those once a rigid and immobile and I think I wouldn't have thought anything of it if I hadn't have gone to the class but it's like wait a minute that wasn't normal yeah. right <laughs> no right. movement exactly. whatsoever right. yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and and then if I can say Terry on the other extreme you've got some guilty people who are so nervous they can't sit still you know they're, yeah. they're up and they're back and they're left and they're I mean they're just a bundle of nerves.
0: Yes. Yeah. You know, and that, that, how do you separate out the nervous, you know, if I'm a healthcare professional and my boss has called me in because they think I'm stealing and, and I'm not, but they clearly have some sort of information that makes them think that I am, which worries me because now I'm thinking about my license and my reputation. And oh my gosh, this could be really bad if, you know, if I can't convince them. Um, So I could see how somebody would be nervous, How, is there a way to kind of filter the nervous from the deceitful?
1: Yeah, well, we we would anticipate that most everybody we interview in an investigation will be nervous, that that's more or less a given. One of the things to try to dissipate some of that nerve nervousness is to tell the person, look, uh, Terry, as you know, we have some drugs missing here from the fourth floor at the hospital. We're interviewing all of the staff who work on the floor to see if anybody might know anything or give us any kind of information that might help us go in the right direction, et cetera. Uh, in other words, you're not singled out. We're not just looking at you. We're interviewing everybody as part of the investigation. And we're just going to be asking you some questions to get a better understanding of the process. Uh, the, the kind of, um, uh, requirements that a person has to meet to get drugs out of the pharmacy, what kind of paperwork is necessary, et cetera. So we understand the process to see if we can see where there might be a hole in the process, et cetera. And and so we're always going to begin with casual conversation. And this is the most important thing I think for the interviewer, the interview should be an information gathering conversation. We're not there to accuse anybody of anything in the interview but we're not there just to take whatever they say without probing a little bit to make sure we understand. So I always talk, talk to my audience when we're teaching, the interview should be a neutral objective fact finder. Uh, so we know we're not taking a position one way or the other, we're trying to develop information to help us decide where we wanna go on the direction of this investigation. Can we eliminate this person is most likely not involved or does this person look like they may be withholding information and we should keep them in the mix as we continue forward with the other investigative steps a nervousness usually diminishes as the interview goes on when they realize you're not accusing them of anything you're giving them a chance to tell their story etc so it usually will dissipate for most truthful people
0: okay that makes sense and i want to differentiate here for the listeners the there's the interview and then there's the interrogation right and the we don't I think most facilities don't want to use that word interrogation. So we tend to, in healthcare just say interview. So Mm -hmm. when Joe is saying the interview is just a fact gathering, we're not accusing, he doesn't mean that that is your whole thing. And then you walk out and you have to make a decision. He's taking that first part, right, is the interview. That's the fact finding. And then depending on what happens with that and the rest of the investigation, then it would be going into what we call interview two or yeah. interrogation. And then that's when it's different. So just so that the listeners out there, you know, don't walk away thinking, okay, I can never challenge. There's a difference uh, there.
1: If, if I can give you another term for interrogation, mm-hmm. we call it positive persuasion.
0: Oh, positive okay.
1: persuasion. persuasion. We're persuading the person to tell the truth. Yeah. Now see, interviewing is Q and A and ideally in the interview, the subject should be doing 80% of the talking. We should be asking open-ended questions. What's the process? What did you do? What happened after that? And let them give us the information, even though we may know some of it. Because we talked to other people who worked in the area. Let's see what he tells us. And if what he tells us is consistent with what we know. When we get to the positive persuasion phase, by now we have enough information that we are convinced or certainly believe this is the person who stole the missing drugs, for example. And so we're going to go in and we're going to tell him or her, Mary or John, the investigation clearly indicates that you haven't told me the truth about these missing drugs. I wanna see if I can spend a few minutes to see if we can get the thing clarified. So we're basically accusing them of doing it. It's a huge step and you never wanna take it casually. And in fact, some, organizations may not want you to ever cross that line uh, which is you know their call no question about it but it's a very different process
0: sure absolutely yeah okay thanks for that clarification do you have any tips on note-taking
1: well what we try to during an during an interview uh, and i'm primarily speaking of a face-to-face interview is watch the person as they're giving the answer. And then we'll take a few notes after the fact. And we're not taking them verbatim. We're taking down the key information and we have codes that we use uh, so that, for example, if you see an arrow up to the right next to the guy's answer, I don't know, it means he broke his eye can't up to the right, as he gave us that answer. If you see an X, it means he crossed his leg at that point. So we do make some notes on nonverbal cues. Um, but it's just, objectively what we see at the time and we do write down the key information they gave us and so there are silences in fact we use the note-taking process to create silences because here's what's going to happen we ask the subject a question he gives us an answer we're jotting it down and sometimes we'll stall take a few notes write down our next question because during that silence the person who maybe had lied to us is wondering should I say something else? What what, what wasn't that good? Wasn't that enough? And they add to their first answer. And almost every time they add to the first answer, they're saying something they probably didn't mean to say. So we (laughs) use the note taking process to create silences. Okay.
0: Yeah. It's like test taking. Go with your first answer and let it be <laughs> don't say <Exactly>. anymore
1: <laughs> all right the more they say yeah exactly, exactly.
0: <laughs> yeah do you have any general tips on improving the likelihood that somebody will if they are guilty um, confess uh,
1: the primary vehicle uh, in the interrogation or the persuasion process to create an environment where the subject feels they're going, they want to tell the truth, is to shift the blame for what they did to some person or circumstance other than themselves. So, for example, um, it, if we have somebody who's involved in stealing drugs, we may know that they're having a lot of financial problems. Their spouse lost their job last year because of the pandemic. Uh, They have extensive medical bills with one of the youngsters that are not fully covered by their plan. They have to pay out of pocket. And so they may have gotten involved in this activity to get some money for their family, as opposed to getting money to go out and gamble or party or, you know, buy a gun or something like that. Now, it doesn't make it legally acceptable that they stole drugs to get money for their family, but it makes it sound more understandable. Everybody who does something wrong rationalizes it. I mean, when you're speeding down the highway at 85, the speed limit's 70, you know you're breaking the law, but you do it anyway, because you're just keeping up with traffic. And yeah. you're not going as fast as the guy who just blew by you at 110. So That's we right. justify our behavior all the time. And so in the persuasion process, really all that we do is reintroduce that justification uh, that many subjects have already adapted.
0: Okay. Have you ever been involved in an interview And after, you know, with everything, the full investigation and the interview, and you're just not sure one way or the other. Absolutely.
1: absolutely Sure. Absolutely. See, here's the, here's the thing about behavior. For example, in the interview, almost no truthful people do everything like a truthful person in an interview and almost no deceptive people do everything like a deceptive person. Usually you have a combination of behaviors, but it usually tilts one way versus the other. So it's okay. never really a clear-cut decision in most cases. You're factoring in a lot of information. Um, so behavior's part of it. Case facts are part of it. I mean, we may have somebody who looks very truthful and very honest, but we've got him on video coming out of the room uh, on Monday afternoon, and he says the last time he was in the room was the prior Thursday. So he's lying to us about when he was there. We have evidence. So no matter how credible he seems in the interview, something is wrong.
0: Okay. Well, that makes me feel better. Yeah. Cause sometimes I'm just like, oh, I don't know. I'm confused. Oh, yeah,
1: sure. Sure. <laughs> we, we, we get confused a lot. No okay. Doubt good. About it.
0: I, I need more experience, but it's good to know that even the experts oh, yeah. sometimes still. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Can you tell us about uh, some interesting case that you had and how it evolved or some lessons learned that new interviewers typically go through?
1: i think the biggest lesson that i learned and that i would want to share with your audience is that you never want to assume what you think the subject was trying to say or meant to say okay Okay. i'll give you an example and i i I give you this one because it's just fresh in my mind in a sexual harassment case we asked the subject when was the last time you talked to mary smith and he says oh i'm sure the last time i talked to her was on friday that's a very definite Definitive answer. Now, I don't know if it's true yet, but at least he's saying last Friday was the last time. The next person we interview, uh, when's the last time you talked to Mary Smith? Gee, Mary and I had several conversations last Friday at work. When's the last time he talked to Mary? We don't know. See, he's hoping that when we hear that answer, we're assuming he meant that was the last time, but he didn't say that. So we would have to ask him a follow-up question. Well, have you had any conversations with Mary since Friday? And he may say, no, 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 no. That was the last time. And that's fine. But he might say, well, I did talk to once on Sunday, but it was only for a minute. Okay. Just for a minute. Okay. Uh, But I did talk on Sunday. Have you spoken to Mary since Sunday? No, that was the last time until he says the words the last time he hasn't answered the question. So the advice I give to investigators Mm -hmm. is to follow the principle of two words. And the two words are listen, literally listen to exactly what they say, not what you think they were trying to say or meant to say just exactly what they say. And if we follow that guideline, that's going to be very helpful.
0: That's good. I'll have to listen back to our video, but when you said, I'm like, he said Friday, but now I see what you're saying. He didn't say that was the last time. And so it's, yeah, sometimes when they don't answer a question, it's a little bit more obvious than other times. So we no definitely do have to listen. All right. I think that's great advice. All right. Tell us what uh, Re- Johnny Reed and Associates offers for people that want to develop this skill set.
1: Oh, a variety of platforms. We have uh, in-person training programs that we do all over the country. Uh, for the last year or a little over a year now, we've been running a Zoom training programs. They're typically one day in length, six hours of training time, if you will. Uh, we have online video programs training programs that we have developed. And last year, maybe uh, shortly after COVID came in, I'd say maybe uh, April, May, June, we developed a YouTube channel. And the YouTube channel is called the Read Technique Tips. And on there, we have about currently 23 or 24 video presentations on different elements related to the interview or the persuasion process, room setting issues, things of that nature, et cetera. Uh, So that's a great resource. Obviously being on YouTube, it's free. It's a great resource for people. Uh, So those are the the main training platforms.
0: That's great. All right. Well, this has been great. This is, I'm I'm sure our listeners will get a lot out of this because this is one area that I think a lot of healthcare professionals that are involved in the diversion monitoring space they don't have a lot of experience in the interview piece and maybe don't even participate it's you know left to human resources or mm-hmm. or some other entity so this is great to to get a little bit more information on that and i want to thank you joe for spending this time with us
1: my pleasure thank you very much